Just a quick reminder that I have built a library resource on the website, which is adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. And I am creating a, a hub for you to be able to look for all different types of resources, online workshops. I've got the hormone series, which has now been broken down into individual workshops, which range from thriving with ADHD post-diagnosis, how to avoid burnout. I've got something called the ADHD Holistic Starter Kit, which is three workshops in one. I've got things about managing your ADHD nervous system and a three-hour tapping into your ADHD gold workshop. I am trying so hard to curate a, a list of different workshops. So when you are not getting the help and the support you want from maybe resources locally, that you're able to go onto the website and really find what resonates with you right here, right now. It's all there. And I've tried to make this as accessible, as cost-effective as possible for you, because this is all about awareness, empowering, helping you advocate for yourself and get the information that you all deserve. So it's all there on my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. Now back to the episode. Welcome to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, and I'm a wellbeing and lifestyle coach, EFT practitioner, mum to four kids, and passionate about helping more women to understand and accept their amazing ADHD brains. After speaking to many women just like me, and probably you, I know there is a need for more health and lifestyle support for women newly diagnosed with ADHD. In these conversations, you'll learn from insightful guests, hear new findings and discover powerful perspectives and lifestyle tools to enable you to live your most fulfilled, calm and purposeful life wherever you are on your ADHD journey. Here's today's episode. Today I've got Kat Brown. I'm so excited. I've got Kat's book right in front of me. It's not a bloody trend. And I'll give you a little bit of an intro um, about Kat so we can then dive into the conversation. So Kat is an arts journalist whose work is on mental health stigma and other social entertainment commentary has appeared in The Telegraph, The Times, Grazio, Woman's Hour, The Eye and her new podcast, Pop Culture. And her book, No One Talks About This Stuff, is an anthology sharing people's untold experiences of infertility and baby loss. And her second book, It's Not a Bloody Trend, Understanding Life as an ADHD Adult, was published just recently and um, was also published a month before her first. Wow. Which is a ridiculousness she really enjoys. That's very ADHD. Why do it just kind of like <laughs> do it both at once and lives in South London with her husband, her dog and two appalling cats. Aren't cats all appalling? I feel like that. I don't know any cat owner that doesn't say that about their cats. <laughs> Maybe it's like having Stockholm syndrome and you're just like, my cats are more appalling than everybody else's. But yeah, they're, they're pretty bad. I love them, but really. <laughs> oh, it's, it's fabulous to have you here and just reading your biog now and just sort of seeing the fact that you've brought out two books within a couple of months of each other is unbelievably impressive and I also feels a little bit exhausting and I'm just very you know just how are you here today talking because it feels like you must have had a very long year writing. It's utterly ridiculous uh, particularly because the book that's coming out later um, is the one that I started so much earlier. So the reason why I'm here, the reason why I've, I've written these books with a lot of help um, from other people sharing their experiences and so on is because like so many of us, I went through some just real crap, basically. 
I'd had like mental health problems pretty much my entire life, but you know, growing up in England in the 90s, didn't know what they were, so just thought I was, you know, an alien person compared to everybody else and thought that everybody else must be getting on all right. And then in 2019, my husband and I had been trying, you know, in that slightly lazy way that you do uh, for a few years to have kids and it just hadn't happened. And so in 2019, we had two cycles of IVF, which both failed due to unfertilized eggs, which I'd, I'd never heard of before. And even if you if even if you search it on Instagram, it's not even a thing on Instagram. And that's when you know that it's niche. And the following year, just as we'd all gone down into lockdown, um, you know, we found out from another consultant that there were just was no recommendation for us to do more IVF and so we wouldn't have kids. And so my response generally, when something earth shatteringly, like planet affectingly difficult has happened, has been to try and do something about it. And and so with this, uh, with both of these, really, my solution was to try and add to the respective bookshelves on the matter. With infertility, it was because all of that subject was so siloed. It was pretty much divided into memoirs by white celebrities who had a miracle baby at the end and nobody ever discussed the conflicting feelings that might ensue from becoming a parent after quite a lot of trauma because, oh, it's a happy ever after. Or it might be a book about childlessness or it might be a book about miscarriage or other things, but they were just never brought together. And I'd also given up drinking alcohol shortly after the failed IVF. And from going to support meetings, I was just like, I would really like something for this, for infertility, but there just wasn't anything. And so my aim with that book, which is called No One Talks About This Stuff, is was basically to give space to people from all backgrounds, all intersections of society, all genders, all sexualities, all well, as many identities as you can in 22 essays, to sort of bring together a support group in the book. Because as certainly I find through listening to your podcast, to all of the ADHD podcasts and other, you know, neurological conditions, other mental health podcasts, we try and listen to the similarities and not the differences in people's stories. And it's kind of amazing how in people who on paper we have nothing in common with, we can take so much comfort and reassurance from people sharing their stories. So that was it for the first book. And there was a huge element of that in It's Not a Bloody Trend, which is my ADHD book. But also there was a real element of schadenfreude because over the last few years, I'd seen my industry journalism across the world absolutely hammered by populism. I'd seen social media really impacted by fake news. And of course, you know, there's that that sort of, I think it's an aphorism, I'm never quite sure, but a lie can get around the world in the time it takes the truth to get its boots on. Mm. And as soon as the conversation started blowing up around ADHD, I looked at it and was transported back 10, 12 years when I wrote about having depression and the conversation online and on social media about ADHD was exactly the same time cycle as it was for depression. Oh, people are just sad. People can't cope. Rah, rah, rah. Oh, it's awful. And and so I really wanted to unpack that. Yeah. So the opening and closing chapter to It's Not a Bloody Trend. And if anybody is worried about reading a massive book, it's fine. Just read those chapters and then pick whatever else works. 
is to unpack a bit how journalism and specifically online journalism works and to remind everybody that just because we're living in a time of amazing technological advances, there's no like grown up in charge who's making sure that we're all safe and looked after. So we really have to be our own sleuths. We have to, you know, remember that you are an adult and we need to analyse what are people saying and why are they saying them? Because mm-hmm. we know that ADHD isn't a trend, but my God, writing horrible opinion pieces about it certainly has been. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, there's so much to say in that, that it must have been so hard. You know, so many people I know that go through an ADHD diagnosis, it's all consuming, the grief, the understanding, the processing, the talking about it, the the finding the accommodations, learning new strategies, all of that is genuinely all consuming. And then you were also dealing on the other side is the infertility and navigating that. And for you to sort of be bouncing from and um, talking about that and talking about other people's stories with infertility, which must have been, you know, deeply emotional. And then you're also with this book, so many stories were in there and I was reading them and some of my, you know, my heart was breaking with some of them listening to how it much it's impacted people's lives and mental health. And I see this every day, but when you're reading it in a book and it's there in black and white, it's like, you know, it really does take your breath away a little bit. So um, I hope that you're okay and you're giving yourself a bit of time to kind of just I don't know, look after you, because what you've done is incredible for both communities and so needed. But also, I can only imagine there must have been a bit of a mental toll as well that that was taken. Honestly, the <laughs> the third piece in that um, was that I had a hip replacement in 2022 yes, that was fine until it became infected. And then I was on antibiotics for three months and basically just became candy floss in human form. And so... And that actually, surprisingly, has had almost more of an impact than... Oh, actually, no, that's not true. I've had a lot of therapy, thank God. So it's probably only because I've been able to process some of that that Mm. I can say that the physical elements of the last couple of years have affected me perhaps more than the others. Because I always used to use like horse riding or yoga or, or, you know, running around flapping my arms in the air going, wee, at park run or something (laughs) as as a nice distraction. And I just haven't been able to do that. And... So actually, the hardest thing for me this last year has been having my bum in the chair, writing the book, doing all the boring bits of admin that I don't like around writing a book that requires, you know, lots of other people very kindly giving up their time. And then also just like, I'll be honest, just eating a lot of crispy M&Ms. I think getting fat. (laughs) I've been looking after myself, but I don't think I've been sort of in that place that perhaps we all optimistically hope that we'll get to at a certain point, which is, I don't know, my icon for this is always like deliciously Ella, Ella Mills, who I think is fabulous. And I still don't think that spiritually I'm at Ella Mills level of looking after myself, but I'm healthy. I'm happy. I'm not isolating myself in the way that in certainly my early years of, you know, all of this um, that I was, and I'm just incredibly grateful to wider ADHD communities and people that I know in in real life as well for just being total champs. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you say about really addressing the media and how the media have um, stigmatized ADHD, and it's really not helped, you know, thankfully there's been some fantastic articles, but still out of a few fantastic articles, um, even recently there was an article and the headline is obviously clickbait, 
but it revolves around this trend of ADHD. You know, doesn't everyone seem to have ADHD at the moment? Is it awareness or is it because they're being overdiagnosed or does every parent want their child to be neurodivergent? You know, is it cool to have an autistic child? Like all these different things it was kind of bringing up. And I just love that, you know, the title of your book, It's Not a Bloody Trend, because we know, um, I know you cite in your book, I think it's in 1775. Yeah. Okay. It's the most brilliant quote. And I'm just going to read this bit from your book. It says, the Scottish physician Alexander Crichton documented a condition nicknamed the fidget by those living with it, which he described in a 1798 textbook, which is a perfect depiction of inattentive type ADHD. And this is what it says. In this disease of attention, if it can with propriety be called so, every impression seems to agitate the person and gives him or her an unnatural degree of mental restlessness. People walking up and down the room, a slight noise in the same, the moving a table, the shutting a door, suddenly a slight excess of heat or of cold, too much light or too little light, all destroy constant tension in such patients inasmuch as it is easily excited by every impression. I mean, it couldn't be more on point. It couldn't be more today. Talking about the sensory side, the hot, the cold, the too much light. And that was 1798. So, you know, even if you don't read any of the rest of the book, that in itself validates the fact that this is not a bloody trend. And I've got two brothers and I'm sandwiched in between. I was diagnosed in 2020 and my older brother was diagnosed in probably 1988 and so you know and another brother was probably diagnosed in about 1992 it's just the fact that we've just got more understanding more expertise more awareness more specialists however we're still you know we're still learning and your book, I think, is so helpful because you've got different chapters. First of all, I love the font size, by the way. It's the most fantastic font size. I never comment on font size apart from it's too small and it's too this, it's too, the, you know, the words are too crammed together. Um, it's a wonderful font size because it, um, it's just easy to read. And typical ADHD, I cram read your book over the past 24 hours, which Good. I feel like is a much better way of doing it because if I'd read it a chapter a night for three weeks, I wouldn't remember anything in the book. So I've cram read it. I've highlighted it. I've underlined it. I've put all sorts of page, you know, fold overs. And I can categorically say that every single chapter, whether it's exercise and lifestyle, hormones, treatment, the diagnosis, the acceptance, you've interviewed people who are all telling their specific stories. And as we know with ADHD, everyone's story is very different, but there's always those kind of common threads that run through. And we can always see ourselves in a in a guy, in a girl, in in a grown man, in a grandmother, in in whatever that is, and we can we can understand, we can empathise impact that a diagnosed ADHD has had on their family, themselves, their health, and it's even though it's quite it is quite painful to read some of it. It's almost healing as well, and I think it's very validating. And if you've got a family member, perhaps it's one of those books that I would probably leave on their bed and say, even if you don't want to listen to me and you don't really care about what <laughs> I've got to say, read this and maybe something might, you know, might shift in you. Um, so I just want to say thank you, Kat, because I think it's a really, really important book. That means a lot, Kate. I know that you take on board a lot of the literature, the discussion around ADHD, which also must be flipping exhausting. Um 
but no, I'm, that also means that fingers crossed, I have achieved what I wanted to do, which was in part to offer like an actual support for people who are recently diagnosed or on the waiting list, but also to just give them, to help them build their shell, if you like, their protective armour to be able to go, oh, that's interesting. Why, why do you think that insane opinion that has absolutely no basis in fact or science? By being able to go, oh, actually, here, on page three, that's not true. Or isn't it interesting that society fears difference? Or actually, this article suggesting that people want to have an autistic child because it's fashionable goes against years, centuries of people actually getting rid of their children altogether and putting them in homes, uh, just abandoning them because it wasn't cool. Or the idea that people with ADHD or autism or any other neurodiversity are getting unfair advantages in school. Or that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you know, when I was at school, there wasn't all of this stuff. Do you know why? It's because they weren't allowed to be schooled in mainstream schools. A lot of the information that I've included in this book, and again, gang, it's in the introduction. You don't have to sift through it waiting there. It's, let's get this clearly identified. A lot of the information there isn't about necessarily people with ADHD, but it is about people with other disabilities or with other conditions that has meant that they have been intrinsically the subjects of societal stigma. So, for example... The numbers of people recorded as being left-handed dramatically rose between the end of the Victorian era and the mid uh, the mid twentieth century, and this wasn't because there was you know some gene or something that suddenly exploded. It was basically because people stopped having their hand their their hand tied behind their back at school and being forced to write with their right hand. This was my mum. You're kidding? Seriously. No, my mum. My mum would have been left-handed and she said at school she was forced to learn how to write with her right hand and her handwriting's always been abysmal and she's 72 now and she just said at school no one was left-handed, no one was allowed to be left-handed. So you may have remembered that I talked about a new supplement called Get Dopa. Now, I have now been taking Get Dopa for about three months now, every single day. And I have to say, I'm very excited that I'm bringing them back as a sponsor for the podcast because it works. Get Dopa has combined lots of the different supplements I was taking and just put them into one. So it's only three supplement tablets a day. And these combined are 16 powerful nootropic ingredients in the one smart supplement. It's really clever. And it's been created by a neurodivergent person. His name is Matt Buff. I've chatted to him and he's so passionate in helping neurodivergent brains thrive, feel regulated, less anxious, more clarity. And I have to say, I have really been surprised by the impact that Get Doper has had on my working day, feeling much more calm, my memory, my energy, my cognition, my focus, my mood has been significantly improved. I've just felt like a better version of me taking Get Dopa. So I really wanted to be able to share this with you. Now, many of you have messaged me to say that you have bought it using the code, which is Kate10, and you have also noticed a difference. Now, you can take Get Dopa alongside medication or instead of medication if medication is not for you. And it has been celebrated by many different lifestyle medicine practitioners. Also, Dr. Rachel Gow, who is a nutritional neuroscientist, 
community who I've worked with, who is on the podcast, is also part of my ADHD Women's Wellbeing Hormone Series, and also Sarah Osborne, who is also an ADHD nutritionist. And they're all saying the same thing, that the fantastic, unique formulation, which is incorporating a blend of ingredients renowned for their cognitive, energy-boosting and mood-enhancing properties, is a fantastic supplement for ADHD. So I want you to have a look on the show notes or go to the link. It's getdopa.com. And if you use my discount Kate 10, you'll get a 10% discount. Head to getdopa.com, put in my discount code, and that should give you an opportunity to buy it at a slightly lower rate. I hope it really helps you. And please do message and let me know. We'd love to hear. Okay, now back to today's episode. One of the last chapters of your book is about hormones, something that I'm really passionate about and talk about and I've got um, created the ADHD hormone series where I'm just interviewing lots of different specialists who can help with the nuances of ADHD, neurodivergence and hormones and helping us break down the connection between PMDD and migraines and endometriosis and all these different things that we are hearing anecdotally that we are knowing on the ground is true, but is not being reinforced by science and and medical evidence. And that is systemic because women have always, you know, on the back foot with medicine and women's health has never been a priority. But right now we're still having to piece it together. We're still having to go to our doctors, advocating for ourselves with a little list of evidence, praying that we're not going to get dismissed. Did you feel validated in your own experiences of you know, going through what you've gone through in your life, I guess maybe just for the whole book, but maybe also with the the hormone side as well. With the hormones, uh, there are a couple of really interesting developments that are happening now, which I definitely want to flag. One of which is when I interviewed Dr. Louise Newson for the book and was asking about studies into menopause and and ADHD, uh, she basically just laughed because she was like, there are barely there are barely enough research studies into menopause just because nobody with money is interested. And she said, look, if anybody's listening who has like a spare million, you know, chuck it towards menopause. That would be amazing. But a researcher from I think, oh God, I'm going to forget this now. Sorry, ADHD brain. But um, Ellie Domit, who is at, I think she's KCL. Yes, KCL. Sorry, Professor Ellie Domit. Um, she is launching a research study into the overlap between ADHD and menopause. And there's a call out for subjects at the moment. So if anybody is interested, if you're a woman living in the UK, 45 to 60, with or without a diagnosis, plus a few other criteria, then take part, be a part of science. That would be absolutely incredible. The other thing is, is that I tend to find any new developments, either just through podcasts, listening, Googling, etc. And I've been experiencing perimenopausal symptoms for a good couple of years. I say good couple of years. Nobody has a good couple of years with perimenopausal symptoms. And ostensibly, I was too young to be experiencing that. But my maternal grandmother like completed menopause at 44, which is you know pretty young. Um, and I didn't know about my paternal grandmother because she died when I when I was quite young. Although interestingly, um, she had seasonal affective disorder, and the whole family had to move south into England to help her with that. Um, So another thing about historical mental health that sort of travels through the generations and arrives in other ways. that's highly connected as well with ADHD. Yep, Yep. doesn't need to be ADHD from the generations. Just having mental health conditions is enough of a hit, if you like, to sort of add to the likelihood of somebody down the line getting that. But the other thing that I found is 
um, a hormone clinic specifically for neurodivergent women. And I have never put in a doctor IQ request as fast as when I found that at one of my local hospitals. So these clinics do exist. They're just very much in a sort of experimental stage. And so I've been on the waiting list for that. It's another glorious waiting list. Uh, so that's at the Maudsley in South London. And fingers crossed there would be other other hospitals around the country doing this research because obviously, you know, getting to Camberwell is not helpful for people throughout the UK and, and Ireland, certainly. Um, but it was it just, I suppose, another example of how the only way that we can really find out anything is by researching it ourselves and then going along to somebody else and asking. The menopause treatment in the UK and the prevalence of women again, anecdotally, but saying that they've been offered antidepressants rather than HRT. It's really bad. And it wasn't until I was reading a book by a, a foreign author, I'm going to insult her terribly by saying she's American and she might turn out to be Canadian, but Heather Corinna, who wrote a fabulous book on perimenopause and menopause called What Fresh Hell Is This?, which I inhaled in the bath one afternoon. But through that, discovered that menopause training in the UK for GPs, whose patients are going to be 51% AFAB assigned female at birth, they get like two and a half hours optional training into it. And I know, I get it that there is a massive, massive amount of training and of conditions for, for GPs to focus on. But I mean, menopause is massive. Perimenopause is massive. Been. Yeah. And like, like neurodivergence, like uh, endometriosis, like adenomyosis, PCOS, all of these things. These are conditions that women have just had to, you know, put up and shut up about for centuries, whether it's just like, oh, it's normal to have heavy periods. Oh, it's normal to feel pain. Oh, just, you know, just put up with it, toughen up with it. And then again, living in the decades, even relatively recently, before we had the era of instant access to information of all kinds that we do now, we would only really know what the people in our circle would tell us or what perhaps we read in the papers. And certainly those weren't necessarily catering for a female readership in anything more than charming features and lovely, lovely pieces about motherhood and prams and that sort of thing. But certainly nothing about postnatal depression or postnatal psychosis even or you know, ectopic pregnancies, any of any of these things. All of this just comes down to the fact that people were too ashamed, too afraid, or too confused, too ignorant in sometimes the best possible way, sometimes in a frankly inexcusable way to be able to help other people. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about that, I've got um, a lady called Laura Spence, who is a neurodivergent doula. And we've talked about, you know, ADHD, neurodivergence and childbirth, pregnancy, postpartum, and the differences between all of that as well. And really understanding all these different ways our hormones will have impacted us and we may not have made those connections. And really allowing us to heal and grieve and understand and give ourselves compassion over things that we didn't have any control over, we thought we should have had control over, we thought we should have coped better or done things differently. And it 
as sad as it is that we didn't know it at the time to now have someone coming in and validating it, you know, through your book, through people on podcasts. And now actually, I just wanted to mention, if we're talking about research, I've got two research papers in front of me, which again, you know, it's kind of giving us hope. And I do want to leave this podcast with some hope um, that science is catching up. And this one has just come out now and it's the new data shows the prevalence of PMDD in women and in understanding how much bigger it is than we think. And it was by um, the Department of Psychiatry at University of Oxford. And I've actually got Dr. Thomas Thomas Riley at Oxford coming in with um, the person he did this research with, Claire Knox, who's an organisational psychologist, who they both authored it together, and she's experienced the PMDD herself. And she wants to, they both want to be able to understand if we can really sort of join these connections, join the dots with neurodivergence in women. So we're going to have this conversation. And then there's another piece of evidence that sort of just came out in the Hormones and Behaviour Journal. And it's this is really groundbreaking because, again, it's exactly what we know, but we need the evidence, we need the science to back it up for anyone to listen. And it's all about ADHD and the menstrual cycle, the theory and the evidence, and really cementing that there is now a connection. And I recently just listened to Dr. Jeanette Wasserstein, who is um, one of the pioneering psychiatrists. She's a neuro, I think she's a neuro psychiatrist I've probably got that wrong but she's also been on the podcast and she did an attitude podcast very recently talking about this new piece of information and what she said in it was there's now some evidence to say that if women who are experiencing earlier perimenopausal symptoms if we can to go on HRT earlier as early as possible it helps. It really, really helps. And I was one of those people because I um, went to see a doctor, an amazing menopause doctor who specializes in ADHD, Dr. Emma Ping. And I said to her, I think I'm too young for this. She goes, tell me your symptoms. Tell me how your ADHD is manifesting. Tell me about your hormones, how it's physical in my periods. It was physical in my energy. She said, oh yeah, no, you're definitely, you'd definitely benefit from HRT. So at the age of 41, I started HRT. And I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I didn't want to talk about it. I'm too young for this. And it was the best, best thing I could have done because I don't take medication anymore or right now. So for me, right now, my HRT is the medication. It really helps me, balances balances and stabilizes me through the month. So my ADHD feels more manageable. It is important. And I think your book also does that. It's removing the stigma and allowing people just to say the things that we've probably felt deep shame over. How do you feel knowing that you've put this book out into the world and you've given all these people a voice and allowed other people to see themselves in this sort of collective group of people and know that actually we're not broken, flawed, bad people? On the one hand, I feel completely delighted and also really put out because pretty much everybody that I've interviewed in the book is much funnier than I am. And there are some... (laughs) amazing, <laughs> amazing zingers in there, which make me very, very happy. Um, I underlined a few on, of them. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, when I, I think, sit down like with my tarot cards or something else or with the traitors of, a, of an afternoon, I've got about 12 global series to work my way through now, I feel really angry. I feel really, really angry because we, we shouldn't have to do this. You know, in 2024, people should be able to access healthcare 
at all, let alone without a waiting list. People should be able to either go to a doctor and know that they will be listened to thoughtfully and realistically and not dismissed out of hand by somebody who isn't perhaps an expert themselves. Um, People shouldn't have to turn to TikTok or books or podcasts, all the things that we do whilst we're waiting for an assessment to find out more about how our brains work, to learn at a relatively late stage in life that we are not defective, horrible avatars in meat suits. Like people should not have to find out through their children being diagnosed with a condition that they also have that condition. And the idea that then there are still some people who are disingenuous enough to go, oh, well, they're just chasing medication. Oh, sorry, that medication that people are going to have to be on a waiting list for two more years to access, the medication that is largely not available in the UK at the moment, instead of, you know, I don't know, going on WhatsApp and texting the, ne- the neighbourhood drug dealer to do a drop-off. It's just, it and the medication, it's so convoluted and not certain. If it was just one pill and it was simple and it wasn't going to be this kind of like three-month grind of trying this thing, failing with that thing, upping it, changing it, um, mixing it, um, balancing it, it's it's frankly exhausting having to go through that titration period. And so if someone was doing it for the medication, it's just ridiculous. And a lot of the time we go through this whole process and realise that actually, do we like the medication? I'm not sure. It's not for that. And it's very important that people understand that it's not a quick fix, this medication. But what I I really liked about some of the chapters in your book was the organisation and there was lots of tips. It's very practical. But there was one with the organisation one where there was quite a lot of um, apps in there that I hadn't heard of and little strategies and little tips. And I was thinking, that's brilliant. I'd written, you know, quite a few of these apps down. And you also talk about access to work and how to really stay, you know, stay on top of that because it is not yeah. an easy system. Nightmare. And it's almost just doing it to spite them, isn't it? I mean, sometimes I do drive them mad because I think they sh- they are ignoring me again. And I just drive them mad because I deserve to get this access to work help. And so many of the people deserve it as well. And so you, you've talked about this that's going on right now on the ground. You know, it feels like such a topical book right now. Did you find that when you were interviewing people and you were learning all of this, like, did you learn new tips and strategies for yourself and maybe from a lifestyle perspective, organisation, keeping it with friends and family? Like, what new things did you learn? I learned absolutely tons. Have I implemented them all? Have I buggery? (laughs) Absolutely not. I am. We all are like completely overwhelmed. That is just the world that we live in at the moment, post-pandemic and in a, not just the cost of living crisis, but just the the unsettled nature of the UK particularly, but also like globally. So I think one of the best tips that I took um, was from Claire Seal uh, in the finance chapter, which applies so much more widely. It's just basically do something. If it stops working or you don't like it anymore, stop it, do something else. That applies to organisation, that applies to how you track your finances. And actually, I am delighted that I am living where I am now because I have access to apps and online finances. Like my finances have always been a mess, partly because of ADHD, partly because I was also just being wildly underpaid, um, which is also, you know, easy to forget. But like now, just having access to, as you say, 
apps for organization, for, for gamifying chores in the house. Uh, there was a wonderful podcast called The Lazy Genius, which is fantastic, I think, specifically for parents and families in a sort of parallel way to Casey Davis's struggle care and how to keep house while drowning. Um, I mean, which is, you know, very, very helpful for sort of putting practices in place. Um, and then also, like, I still forever fold my clothes and store them vertically like Marie Kondo because that was just incredibly useful to me and it's something that I still love and still find like very very helpful but I'm I'm forever dropping hobbies ways of being fit uh just because I'm, I'm no longer interested in them or they're just not doing it for me anymore I remember like vividly, literally crossing the finish line of the London Marathon in 2014, having a panic attack and just lying there because I was like, I could literally feel the desire to run falling out of my body as I'd achieved that goal. Mm-hmm. And you know, I did run every now and then after then, but it wasn't part of my life as it had been before. But you know what? I moved on to horse riding and that was great. And you know what, you know, we can reframe all of this now and maybe before without all the awareness that we had, there would be so much sort of self-blame and guilt and shame and self-criticism and that that voice of just, why do you do this? Why do you drop hobbies? Why do you never stick at anything? Why is the house always a mess? And now it's just, you know, actually this acceptance, this acceptance piece of, you ran a marathon, that's more than most people have done, and you completed your job, you did what you wanted to do, and now it's time to move on. And actually, variety is the spice of life. And I would hate my life if I said to myself, the only thing I'm ever going to do for the rest of my life is run. I would die of boredom. <laughs> and so I'm actually so grateful for the brain that I have that makes me interested in so many things and makes me dip in and out and want to make new friends and learn new things and constantly being curious. And now I look at my bookshelf and think, would it be nice for it to be colour coordinated and organised by author? Yes. Am I ever going to do that? No. So I'm just going to have to deal with the fact that my bookshelf is just a bit messy and my knicker drawer is never going to be perfectly aligned. And all these things that I used to think were really important. And I have to, because otherwise I will drown in all the shoulds, the needs, the have tos. And I've chosen, I've, I've literally chosen not to do that anymore because I used to do it and it was just so exhausting and I need every essence of energy that I have to live life with ADHD well. This is it. And thrive. This is it. Uh, I think the number one thing is that we have to remember that ADHD is a constellation of symptoms and it's going to be completely different for everybody. And then on top of that, the intersection of our own lives, our upbringing, race, sexuality, gender, whether we've got kids or not. Four kids and you manage a podcast. Bloody hell, Kate. And <laughs> Got an editor, really good editor. <laughs> <laughs> but, but also, I think after years of feeling intrinsically like there is something wrong with us, I certainly find that that way of thinking can almost be a comfort that I return to when I'm stressed, overworked, or just feeling like I'm you know, struggling. It can be quite comforting to go, oh, well, it's just because I'm crap, really, instead of going, no, it's not that you're crap. It's that this is really hard. That's happening. That person is asking 19 things of you that realistically they should have asked two weeks ago instead of at the last minute. But that can all be quite overwhelming and difficult to take on board, which is why it is so important that we keep the things that serve us. And I mean, within reason, you can't literally throw out everything, but just pick and choose what you take in 
And that that also goes to news and TV and stuff. Oh, there's a new series of Sort Your Life Out on BBC One coming soon. And for sheer comfort of organisation and tidying, and particularly because lots of their families are, have ADHD as well, mm. it's just it's just wonderful. Is that but, Stacey Solomon? It's Stacey Solomon. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. It's such a great show. And it's just, again, finding the things that work for you, but also being very aware of the fact that even when you think you're doing crap, you're doing amazingly because you are doing it now in this time, in 2024, with all the information that we have available now. If we think back like 50 years or so, then unimaginable things were just par for the course. Like in the 70s, uh, 50s to 70s onwards, that black children were so often categorised as being educationally subnormal in schools, just simply because they were black. And if you were mixed race in the 50s, it was pretty, that was just what was, uh, that was just what was said. Uh, Again, you only have to reread books from the time, classic, classic books just to see I mean things expressed in ways that are just fingers crossed unfathomable to us now those we see quite a lot sadly not there's also a really interesting phrase that I think it's important for us to keep in mind particularly if slash when we see sloppy coverage of ADHD or to be honest any other community or minority being treated in this way and that's future shock and that is when the the idea of the future and present just sort of, they just all come up a little bit too fast. And it's basically where we are now with the internet, with 24 hour news cycles, with trends, with Twitter storms, with all of that. It's that feeling of things catching up too fast. And that is when people can become particularly donkey-like, stubborn, and just like, well, this is all nonsense. We didn't have it in my day. And it's like, no, you didn't, Stephen, because back then, if if people had a problem and they weren't in an acceptable group, if you like, like, for example, uh, a white middle class or upper class gentleman who, you know, you could put away any sort of strange behaviour by calling him eccentric or, <laughs> or something like a nice honourable word like that. Yes. It's just, you know, so things true. have changed. Yeah. And I think this might be real, you know, Pollyanna thinking, but for me, something that really helps, whether it is around unexplained infertility, ADHD, or they're not being the one pill to fix everything. And again, if we do do medication, then coaching and therapy should always be part of that golden triangle, fingers crossed, although good luck to us accessing it. But it is that whatever we do now, our experiences now, the research that we take part in, the literature that we put out there, the stories that we share on social media, the family that we speak to, the children that we are raising all of this is doing, all of this is going ahead to help people down the line in generations to come understand themselves better. And that is an absolutely amazing thing. It may not be like the comfort above all comforts, but particularly for people with ADHD and to be very generalising about it, we love a sense of purpose. We love a mission. What an incredible mission to be a part of. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, that's what gets me up in the morning. That's what keeps me going when I'm exhausted and burnt out because I've got three daughters and a son and all four of them are neurodivergent, three are diagnosed. And as much as they don't want to hear from me because I'm their mum and all I do is talk about ADHD and gently put books on the stairs and their pillows and send them podcast links, which get ignored, um, and I, I try and say, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an expert in this. And they say... <laughs> I'm a cool mum. 
<laughs> I do not care. All you do is talk about ADHD and then shut me down. And it's very frustrating, but I, I hope that one day this work that I'm trying to do in this world will help them or help their children or their friends and the next generation. We just plow on and we just do what we need to do. And like you say, if if we're lucky enough to be driven by purpose, if we're lucky enough to have found something that motivates us and gives us fulfillment. And we know that Dr. Ned Halliwell talks about this a lot. And I know you mentioned him in the book, that he's a big, um, a big proponent of really honing in on what fulfills us, what drives us, what keeps us going every day, what we feel passionate about. And then whether that's a big mission or just getting up in the morning and um, sweeping your leaves and keeping your garden tidy and or going to your local church or doing whatever that is, as long as that that's there, then you will have an easier life with ADHD. Now, sometimes it's not that easy because I speak to a lot of people go, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what I'm here for. I don't know how to feel fulfilled. Um, and that's when I sort of say, let's just get curious and let's just have a chat. And there's always something. And it's also something that you can add into your day to day. I don't think either of us is suggesting quit your job and, and go and find purpose. Although that's exactly what I did in 2019, uh, a really probably stupid ADHD driven decision after the IVF failed because, hey, I didn't need statutory maternity leave anymore. Idiot. Oh, well, nobody knows there's going to be a global pandemic. But inside your inside your your work or in other areas of your life, just finding those small aspects of life that give you purpose, meaning, community, joy, that's really important. And that is that is something that you can find in in work, whether it's just a job, just a career, whatever, whatever it is to you. Um, also, just I think we need to re-emphasize that just being able to pay bills and keep a roof over the heads of yourself and and the people that you love is is an extraordinary piece of purpose in itself. Even though it never feels very glamorous, because few magazine articles or podcasts are specifically, "Hey, you paid the rent today. Good job." Mm, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I wrote this down here because I think it's either Dr. Tony Lloyd or someone else from one of the ADHD charities, and I've forgotten his name. He said, you should have a to-be list, not a to-do list. Yes. And I really I like that. that. Yeah. yeah. And that was, that, was, a... that was Tony Lloyd. Okay. And Tony has done amazing, amazing work. And his, he, he shares quite a lot of his life story in the book, which is incredibly generous of him like quite quite harrowing I've been careful to to not uh, to basically make sure that everybody who's you know written their story is very happy with how it's presented and everything and also to make sure that nothing is written in a way that could potentially trigger anybody else but again everybody needs to take it gently but a to-be list that's wonderful like who who am I going to be today like be patient be interested be kind hopefully not shout at the cat when it wakes me up at three o'clock in the morning again. But that sort of element and that that lovely freeing moment at the start of the day, like Anne of Green Gables says, you know, oh, I love, you know, tomorrow's wonderful. It's a day without any mistakes in it. Incidentally, lots of papers written about her and Ella Montgomery, her author, about ADHD traits throughout those books. ADHD is everywhere that we look and it doesn't have to be a nightmare. It doesn't have to be horribly difficult but in order for that it needs to involve a lot of acceptance work as professor susan young says pills don't teach skills and 
we also need to have that structure, that routine, the things in place to make our life easier or as as useful for us as it can possibly be. And again, that's going to look different for absolutely everyone, every one of us. And that's why it's so important to share stories more widely. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for writing the book. Thank you for your time today. Um, anybody that's listening now that wants to go and buy it, it's available. It's not a bloody trend. Understanding life as an ADHD adult. I'm sure you can buy it in all, all good bookstores. Oh, and Ooh. just on that as well. Um, please order it from the library. You can pre-order it from, from the library if they don't already have a copy for about £2.50. And then if you want to order it, it, I think ordering from the library is about 70p. Just, again, getting these stories into circulation so that more people can access them is incredible. And just if you if you want to do something to feel purposeful about today, then I would love it if you would order it from your library. Amazing. I love that. Kat, thank you. I'll put all the details in the, in the show notes um, and look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Thank you so much for having me and thank you everybody for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did and it resonated with you, I would absolutely love it if you could share on your platforms or maybe leave a review and a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please do check out my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk for lots of free resources and paid for workshops. I'm uploading new things all the time and I would absolutely love to see you there. Take care and see you for the next episode.